But this morning I direct your attention to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Looking to verses 10 and 11 of 2 Peter chapter 1. I want to preach a message I've entitled, The Marks of True Faith. The Marks of True Faith. And the question that I want us to consider this morning is, what are the evidences of true faith? With there being so many false theories and misconceptions regarding what it means to be born again in the world and among the influences of Christianity, The question that I am asking and seeking to answer this morning is, how do we know if we truly belong to Christ? How do we know if the faith that we profess with our lips is true biblical faith? How do we know whether we are a true possessor of faith, not just a mere professor of faith? If you've been in attendance the past two Sunday mornings, you know that God, through Peter, in the opening greeting of this letter, has provided for us several declarative statements regarding what true faith is and what true faith does in the life of a believer that will cause us to know whether or not we are in Christ or outside of Christ, whether we have, as James says, a living faith or dead faith. And the first truth that Peter sets before us in verse number one is the biblical reality that a true believer will apprehend and acknowledge that faith in God is obtained and not earned. This is indication number one of true faith. A true believer will apprehend and acknowledge that faith in God is obtained, not earned. Verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And what Peter is saying is the faith that he and the other apostles have is the same faith the recipients of his letter have come to receive And they've come to receive it slowly through the unmerited favor of God and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So the first truth that Peter highlights for us in the text is the marvelous truth that faith in God is a free gift from God that is to be received. It is not a reward that we somehow earn through our goodness and works. Peter is affirming here at the outset of his letter that peace with God is graciously given by God, not worked for by men. The forgiveness of sins is offered to sinners through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is not produced by anything we are or anything we do. In fact, the Bible makes it clear that the ability to believe on Christ for salvation is something that is worked in us, not something that we accomplish for God. And this is the message of Ephesians 2, 8, 9. The Apostle Paul says, For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. What is? Faith. 
spiritual life. A relationship with Jesus Christ is a gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. And Paul repeats himself in Titus 3, verse 5, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but it is according to God's mercy that He saves us. So what is the gospel? What does it mean to be a Christian? How does someone actually become a child of God? Well, here's the answer. The answer is faith. Faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Somebody has placed it in an acronym. F-A-I-T-H. Forsaking all, I trust Him. That's what it is. What does it mean to be a Christian? Forsaking all effort to try to save yourself. You believe that the gospel message, the message of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is sufficient to save your sinful soul. If you are to become a Christian, you must come to believe that you are a great sinner and that Jesus is a great Savior. The answer is believe on Christ not behave for Christ. Did you hear what I said? What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to forsake all and trust in Him. It's to believe, not to behave. The answer is to humbly receive the gift of grace that is offered to you rather than trying to earn God's favor through your religiosity. And this is what separates true Christianity from counterfeit Christianity. True Christianity proclaims a message of grace. It's all of God. Counterfeit Christianity, on the other hand, proclaims a message of works, and even faith and works. False Christianity proclaims a message of you. It's your sincerity. It's your prayers. It's your good works. It's your baptism. It's your church membership. It's your church attendance. It's your morality. It's your going to mass. It's your going to the confessional booth. It's your being confirmed. But Peter says very plainly here in verse verse number one that salvation, catch it, is through the righteousness of Christ, not through the righteousness of men. You see, salvation is a gift for the guilty, not a reward for the righteous. This is the first indication that someone knows Christ savingly. This is the first indication that God has done His work in our hearts. A true believer will come to apprehend and acknowledge that faith is obtained, not earned. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. And such an apprehension will cause them to humbly and earnestly cry out to God to have mercy on their soul like the penitent publican rather than trusting in and boasting in their religious works like the proud Pharisee. And then moving on, we find the second indication of true faith to be an intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ. Notice what Peter says in verses 2 and 3. Peter says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and our Savior Jesus, our Lord. 
according as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, notice it again, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Did you catch what Peter said? He says a true believer will be one who not only obtains faith through the person and work of Jesus Christ, but someone who then has an intimate knowledge of Christ. In other words, when someone comes to receive Christ, they will forever have a personal relationship with Christ. And this is what it means to be a Christian. You see, salvation is more than just believing that God exists. Salvation is more than just believing that you are a sinner and that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You do realize that Satan believes that God exists. Satan believes that God is the Creator. Satan believes that Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. Listen, Satan knows that Jesus died on a cross and rose again the third day. So what is the distinguishing difference between Satan and true believers? Verse 3 tells us, it's the divine power of the gospel working in the hearts of men that gives God's people life and godliness through the knowledge of Christ who has called us to himself. There it is. That's the difference. The difference is, here it is, regeneration. God has not given the devil spiritual life in Christ, but God gives to his children life from above. The difference is reconciliation. God reconciling sinners to himself. God adopting his children into his family. God redeeming through his blood. The difference between the devil and God's people is a real union with Christ. It's not just knowing of him in the head, but knowing him in the heart. And this is the distinguishing difference between Christ's true disciples and the Pharisees. The Pharisees had a head knowledge of biblical truth, but they lacked one thing. They lacked a personal relationship with God. And likewise, this is the distinguishing difference between the eleven and Judas. Judas knew about Jesus in his head, but his heart was never converted. To Judas, Jesus was just simply a nice moral man. To Judas, Jesus was a kind miracle worker. He was someone that many respected. But listen, Jesus was not Judas's Savior. Jesus was not Judas's Lord. He was not Judas's closest friend and greatest love. So let me ask you this morning. Who is Christ to you? Who do you say that Jesus is in truth? Is he just a religious figure? Is he just a theory? Is he just a Sunday morning tradition that you put on and put off? Is he some lucky rabbit's foot that you rub when you feel down? Is he just an experience or an emotion? 
Or is he your salvation, your joy, your hope, your life, your savior, your sin substitute, the one your soul loves more than anything else? You see, how you answer that question will determine whether or not you have true faith or false faith. This is evidence number two. A true believer will have an intimate, inward, personal relationship with Christ. A true believer will know Christ and want to know Him more. A true believer will strive, as we read this morning, to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And then connected with this second evidence of true faith is the third, which is found there at the beginning of verse number four. There at the beginning of verse four, Peter says, having come to receive God's gracious gift of salvation by faith, which leads to a personal knowledge of Christ, we then come to apprehend the fact that God has given to his people exceeding great and precious promises. And such promises are recorded in God's word. So the third verifying proof that someone has true faith in Christ is found in their desire for God's word. In verse number four, Peter is establishing the indisputable biblical truth that a true believer will have a sincere hunger and longing to know God through the Word of God. A true believer will have a sincere hunger and longing for the truths of God's Word. When someone is brought to faith through the power of the word, they will come to see that what is written in the Bible has been personally written for them. When somebody comes to faith in Christ, they will come to God's word believing that this is God's love letter to their soul. You see, a true believer will come to see that the Bible speaks to him or her about the love, grace, mercy, and kindness of their God and Savior. A true believer will come to appreciate the fact that God has given them great and precious promises in this word. And this will ultimately lead to a communing with God through the truths that he has articulated within his word. So this is exactly what Jesus says. Jesus says, it's the one who hears and obeys his words who are his true disciples. Many heard with their ear, but it's the one who hears with their inner ear, with their spirit, the one who responds to that word and obeys the word that is like the wise man building his life on a rock. Jesus says it's the one who continues in his word that are his disciples indeed. And this once again is the singular truth that makes the recognizable distinction between the nominal Christian who likes going to church for the coffee and social activities, and the true Christians who want to be confronted with the truths of God so that they might know God and grow in their faith. Listen, this absurd idea that you can be a true Christian and want absolutely nothing to do with Christ's word is foreign to the whole message of the Bible. When someone truly comes to faith in Christ, God's word will become precious to them. 
It will be a lamp unto their feet and a light unto their path. It will become more precious than silver and more costly than gold. We're assessing our faith this morning. If you have true faith in Christ, you will believe that only faith can save. It's not you, but Christ alone. And then you will come to have an intimate, personal relationship with Christ. And then number three, in that relationship, you will come to commune with God through His written Word. So how do we know if someone has been born again? The Bible way. How do we know if we ourselves have true faith in Christ this morning? Well, there will be a recognition that faith is the free gift of God, rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Second, through the new birth, God will give the believer an intimate knowledge of who Christ is. This is not a head knowledge, but a heart knowledge. There will be a personal relationship with God in the heart. And then third, a true believer will have a sincere hunger for God's Word. A true believer will strive to know and live by the truths and principle of Scripture. And then in verse number four, Peter emphasizes the fact that a true believer will become increasingly separated and dissatisfied with the sinful pleasures of the world. This is element number four. A true believer will become increasingly separated and dissatisfied with the sinful pleasures of the world. Don't take my word for it. Look at verse 4. Peter says, Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped, past tense, the corruption that is in the world through lusts. So what is a believer? What is a Christian? What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to have true faith in Jesus Christ? Here it is. A true believer is someone who has been translated from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God. A true believer is one who has turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. A true believer is someone who's been converted. They've become a new creation in Jesus Christ where old things pass away and behold, all things become new. A true believer is someone, listen, who's been called out from the world through the power of the gospel. And Paul alludes to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, speaking of the believers in Corinth. He says, be not deceived. Many are deceived. Many have this opinion that you can love Jesus and love the world equally at the same time. Don't be deceived regarding what the message of true faith is. We read it this morning. No man can serve two masters, for he will either love the one and hate the other. You cannot serve God and man. And yet we live in this Christian world where many believe... I can love Jesus and I can love the world at the same time. And they're trying to keep one foot in the church and one foot in the world. Paul comes at that and says, don't be deceived. That's the deception of the evil one. That's a false gospel. Listen to what he says. Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, 
nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. If somebody is living in habitual rebellion, don't be deceived. They are not Christian. Even if they say they're Christian, they're not. Don't be deceived. But the statement's not over. Paul goes on and says, And such were some of you. You were marked by these sins. You had an intimate love for the things of this world. You were the child of the devil doing the devil's will. You didn't care about God. And such were some of you. But now you're washed. You're sanctified. You've been justified by the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Did you catch the change? Did you see the conversion? This is biblical Christianity. True biblical Christianity brings a radical change to the life of God's children. True biblical Christianity produces a growing distaste for the things of this life. A true believer will come to hate the things that God hates and love the things that God loves. If if there's not been such a calling out of the world in your life, do not flatter yourself that you are a Christian. The Apostle John says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And James echoes that same message. James chapter 4, James says, If any man will be a friend of the world, he's the enemy of God. So a true believer will become increasingly separated from and dissatisfied with the sinful pleasures of this world. There should be a B.C. And an AC in your life. What do I mean? There should be a testimony of, this was me before Christ, B.C. And this was me after Christ. In all the conversion stories of the Bible, that's what we see. Saul of Tarsus. Here's what I was before Christ. I met Christ. He changed my heart. Now here I am after him. There's never been a conversion experience. If it's always, if your testimony is something, oh, I just grew up in church. Oh, my parents were Christian. My granddad was a Baptist preacher. Oh, yeah, you know, I just, I have this inclination towards nice moral people who gather for worship on Sunday morning. That's not a testimony. Well, I was baptized at one time in my life. I'm, I'm trying to do my best. I don't drink, I don't smoke, and I don't hang out with those who do. So I am a Christian. No, have you been called out from this world? Have you been saved from the power of sin? You see, that's what it is. Whereas once you were a slave to sin, that's all you knew. That's all you desired. But the gospel breaks the power of sin and the gospel actually begins breaking down your desire for sin more. Not that you become 
sin less, but you desire to sin less. A true believer will become increasingly separated and dissatisfied with the sinful pleasures of this world. And it's not his work. It's God's work. It's God sanctifying. It's God giving a desire for holiness and purity. And then last week, we observed from verses 5 through 9 that a true believer will desire to add to their faith Christ-like characteristics. Or said another way, a true believer will grow in Christ-likeness. Verse 5, Peter says, And beside this, beside having faith in Jesus Christ, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye should neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. So back to our question, how do we know if God has done his converting work in our hearts? How do we know if God has brought somebody else to himself through the saving power of the Spirit? Answer, we know because there will always be spiritual growth that follows. The Bible makes it very clear that those whom God saves, he sanctifies. Those whom God calls, he consecrates. Those whom God converts, he keeps. Those who are saved by the Spirit will produce the fruit of the Spirit. Paul says, Philippians 1, he that began a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Do you see whose performance this is? It's God. He, the one who saves, he who began his saving work in you will perform it. This means that God does not abandon his children. Those God saves by grace, Ephesians 2.10, are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So those who know Christ will desire to live for Christ. Those who know Christ will desire to put on these Christ-like virtues that are listed in this text and that show the world that we belong to Him. A true believer will grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then we come to the sixth and final indication of true faith, which is found in verses 10 and 11. In verses 10 and 11, God through Peter wants us to recognize that a true Christian who has living faith is someone who perseveres in their faith unto the end. Notice it. Peter says, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Give diligence to make your salvation sure, your profession of faith sure. For if ye do these things, what things? The things he has just listed, the Christ-like characteristics, the seven virtues. 
If you do these things, ye shall never fall. And that word fall means apostatize. Leaving the faith for good. If you do these things, ye shall never fall away from the faith. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what is the final indication of genuine faith in Christ? Here it is. Perseverance in the faith. Perseverance in the faith. In other words, when someone comes to faith in Christ in sincerity and in truth, when God truly converts a heart, when God justifies a soul, when Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, calls His sheep unto Himself by the power of His voice, His sheep will continue to love Him, follow Him, and obey Him all the days of their life. And again, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about perseverance. I'm not talking about sinless perfection. I'm talking about steadfast perseverance. Now let me prove Peter's point to you by reflecting upon Jesus' teaching. Where did Peter get this teaching from? Is he just pulling it out of a hat? Is he just pulling it out of thin air? How does Peter know that this is truth indeed? Well, remember, Peter heard Christ, the Son of God, teach for three years. And within that teaching time, Peter heard the parable of all parables, the parable of the sower, or some call it the parable of the seed. And you remember in the parable of the sower that there are many who appear to be true Christians who at first gladly hear the word of God. They come into church smiling, wearing their Sunday best. But eventually they fall away because, as the parable explains, they were never truly rooted in Christ. Over the course of the years, their life has proven that they were never born again. Satan came along and stole the seed away. The cares and the deceitfulness of riches came and took away that faith. That's not true faith. True faith is rooted in Christ and produces fruit. And then we have the living example of Judas. So we have the parable that Jesus teaches. And then in that parable, we find Judas, which is really a manifestation of that parable. Judas, fellowship with Christ's church. Do you think Judas smiled or do you think he went around growling the whole time with a big J on his forehead with demon horns out of his head. Now we have this picture of Judas being like this dark image, but he wasn't. You understand that Judas prayed with the disciples. Judas preached the word with the disciples. Judas most likely performed miracles. Judas was a moral man. How do we know this? We know this because the disciples were shocked when they found out it was Judas. They had no idea. Judas fit in for three years. And then he fell away because he did not have true saving faith. You see, Judas was a false Christian who had dead faith. And then we contrast this with Peter. The author of our text. What do we know about Peter? Well, Peter had his ups and downs, to say the least. Peter was often rebuked by Jesus for his unbelieving tendencies. Come on, Peter. Surely you've learned your lesson by now. 
Peter often made a mess of things. He was the man with the foot-shaped mouth, speaking before he thought. Peter often questioned the purposes of God. Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, and then I will rise again. And Peter looked Jesus in the eye and said, that will never happen on my watch. Remember, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You do not savor the things of God, you savor the things of earth and of Satan. Was Peter perfect? Far from it. Remember, Peter pulled out his sword when they came to arrest Christ. He cut off Malchus's ear. He was aiming for his head. And remember, it was Peter who denied Christ three times. When others pressed him, aren't, aren't you a follower of Christ? Aren't, aren't you one of Christ's disciples? And Peter said, no, you've got the wrong guy, not me. I know not the man. And he began to curse and to swear, saying, I do not know him. And then what? Peter went back to fishing. His old occupation. So how do we know that Peter was a true believer? Here's the difference between Peter and Judas. Peter did not go back to the world, to fishing, to his old occupation for good. Peter did not abandon Christ for the world. Peter failed, yes, can't deny that. But his failing did not last for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. It lasted but for days. And in his failing, what do we read? We read that he wept. He was broken. He was shamed that his flesh would bring him to a place to deny Christ before men. And then what happened? Even more so, Christ then sought out his erring sheep and brought him back to the fold. This is the difference between true faith and false faith. God's sheep may fail God, but they will never ultimately forsake God. God's sheep may have relapses, but they will never finally reject God. And they will not live as they once did in their sin and unbelief because, here's the answer, because Christ preserves His sheep. You see, the same gospel that saves is the same gospel that keeps. If we've been saved by the power of the gospel, Peter tells us, 1 Peter chapter 1, that we are kept by that same power. Right? John chapter 10. The good shepherd says, My sheep hear my voice. And what do they do? They actually follow me. Do they stumble? Yes. Will they fall in the mud? Yes. But the good shepherd is there to pick them back up. The just man falls seven times. But he gets up again. Because Christ in his grace runs after those who fall and brings them back to himself. Don't we find this with Abraham, the friend of God, father of faith? Was he perfect? No. Did he persevere? Yes. What about Isaac? What about Jacob? You've been reading through Genesis in the new year. What a mess. You want to know the theme of Genesis? Man is unfaithful. God is faithful. What about Jonah? What about David, the man after God's own heart? What do we find in these men? They failed, and they failed miserably, but they continued on. When they sinned, they asked God to forgive. They kept their eyes on Christ. 
You see, Christ doesn't leave His people alone. When we stray, when we sin, God convicts, He confronts, He disciplines, He brings misery to our hearts so that our relationship with Him might be restored. And this is all about what Hebrews is about. If we have true faith in Christ, our Father will act with us as children. But it's the illegitimate child, it's the one who thinks they have faith, who does not, that goes back to the world and they're okay with it and there's no conviction, there's no bother. And they continue in their sin without any shame. They haven't been truly born again. So I'm submitting to you this morning that this is what it means to be a true Christian. A true Christian is someone who lives like a true Christian. Boy, have we spoiled that in our day. Oh, you can be a true Christian, but you don't have to act like one. What? What kind of nonsense is that? A true Christian will not just say they love Jesus. Listen, a true Christian will show by their life that they love Jesus. If you love me, keep my commandments, John 14. Herein is the one that loves me, Jesus says. It's the one who follows me and obeys me, but it's the one who despises my word that knows nothing of the love of God. John reiterates that in 1 John 1. If we say that we have a love for God, but we hate our brother, we lie and do not the truth. If we say that we love God, but we're still seeking after the sinful pleasures of this world, don't tell yourself that you are Christian. A true Christian will be known by their fruit. A true Christian will produce fruit consistent with repentance. A true Christian will endeavor to walk in the Spirit. A true Christian will endure unto the end and be saved just as Jesus said. Do you want to know if you are truly in Christ this morning? The question for you to consider is, are you persevering in the faith? Since the time of your profession of faith, Have you grown to be more Christ-like? Has God been separating you from the world? Since the time of your supposed conversion, have you added to your faith these seven godly elements that Peter mentions in verses 5 through 7? Let me ask you this question. Can others tell that you love God? Well, hmm. My faith is a private faith. Who are you to judge and condemn me? You don't know my heart. Man looks on the outward appearance. God sees the heart. Give me a break. You can tell an apple tree by an apple. Are you judging? You can tell an orange tree by an orange. Are you judging? Yes. We're judging its roots by its fruit. You smell a milk carton to see if it's spoiled or if it's good to drink. You judger. (laughs) We have so many professing Christians. Well, you don't know my relation. Acts chapter 2. Those who are saved at Pentecost, do you think people knew that they came to Christ? How do you know? Well, they continued. Oh, there it is. Perseverance. They continued in the word, in fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. Turn the next chapter, Acts chapter 3. The lame man, everybody knew him. The lame man that was healed through the power of Christ. He went walking and leaping and praising God. Did others notice that there was a change? Absolutely, they stood amazed. Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus, when he was converted, did others notice? 
Even the own, Jesus' own disciples were scared of him. I don't know. I don't know. This, he may be onto something. I think he's just trying to use the name of Jesus to try to take us down. And then they saw by the change that God did, that God had done a work in his heart. Can others tell that you love God? And I'm not just talking about outward performance. I'm talking about an inward spirit. Is there tangible evidence in your attitude, in your behavior, in your actions that demonstrates that you are not the same person you were before you professed faith in Christ? I'm asking, when you sin, does your heart grieve you? Does God discipline you? When you become spiritually cold, does the Spirit prompt you to go to His Word so that your heart might be warmed by the fire of His Word? What I am asking is this. Since the time you've professed faith in Christ, are there good and godly works that would confirm the fact that you are a good tree producing good fruit, or would your life show that you are still a corrupt tree producing evil fruit. That's the test. This is how we can assess ourselves to see whether we are a cultural Christian or an actual Christian. The test of faith is, what does the overall essence of my life exhibit? Does it exhibit an infatuation with this world or an infatuation with Christ? Does it exhibit a desire to do His will or a desire to do my will? Does it exhibit... Living for self or living for Christ? And they which live should not henceforth therefore live unto themselves, but unto him which died and rose again. Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So come on, some of you need to be honest with God this morning. Some of you need to be honest with yourself. You need to be honest with others. Are you dead to the power of sin? Or are you content living? in the pleasures of sin. And don't be fooled. I'm not asking if you like coming to church. I'm not asking if you pray often. I'm not asking if you read your Bible. I'm not asking if you've been baptized. I'm not asking if you're trying to do better. That's not the question. What I am asking is, is Christ in you? Is He the hope of glory? Has He brought you to Himself Is Jesus Christ your life, your peace, your hope, your King, your Savior, your best friend, your guiding shepherd? Have you forsaken all and trusted Him? Listen, is worshiping God a delight to you or a dread to you? Is obeying God a blessing to you or a burden to you? Is loving God something you feel like you have to do? or something that you want to do? How you answer these questions will prove the realness of your faith in God. And you must understand that I am repeatedly emphasizing these evidences, these fruits of true faith and repentance among the gathering of the assembly of God's people, just like Peter, just like John, just like James, just like Paul, because there are always among those among the church who still think themselves to be saved, who are not. But they can be saved if they will repent and believe the gospel. So my question is, is your calling and election sure? Do you have an assurance of faith 
And when you die and take your last breath, you will be welcomed in the presence of heaven. And if you say, yes, I know I'm going to heaven, well, what are you resting on in that? Your behavior? Your sincerity? Your good works? Or what Christ has done? Are you confident that you will spend eternity in heaven? Does the fruit of your life demonstrate that you belong to Christ? Or do you need to be born again? John chapter 3, Jesus said to Nicodemus, Remember, a very moral and religious man who knew the Scriptures. Jesus said to this well-respected, hard-working, religious individual who kept the Sabbath day and went to synagogue every week, Jesus said, Nicodemus, That is not sufficient to save your soul. It's not about what you do. It's about what I have come to do. Salvation is not upon your works, but Christ's works. And so Jesus, point blank, tells Nicodemus, with love and grace, marvel not that I say unto you, Nicodemus, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. You think you see the kingdom, but you don't. You're blind. But if you are born again, you can see the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be born again? It means to be born of God, born from above. It means God shining light into your soul, bringing you to the place where you acknowledge it's not what you do. It's all of what Christ has done. And you come before the presence of God like the publican crying out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You're not like the publican standing afar off saying, well, I'm not like so-and-so in church. I pray, I tithe, I go to all the services, I do my best. Jesus said of that man, the Pharisee, he will not enter into the kingdom of God but to the publican, the one who's been humbled, the one who asks God to be propitious to him. And that's what it means. God, be merciful to me. God, be propitious to me. And actually, in the Greek, it means to me, the sinner. God, be merciful to me. I'm the greatest sinner. God, if you would be merciful to me, then I could be saved. And Jesus says, of that man, he went to his house justified rather than the other. For it's the one who humbles himself that shall be saved. Do you need to be saved this morning? From your heart right now, cry out to the Lord. Acknowledge that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And you are a sinner. You've fallen short of the glory of God. You can't change your own heart. You can't wash away your own sins. But Jesus can. Jesus can. 